This week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And it, it's just been a week. It's been, I don't know, just a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of weather changes. We had a windstorm that blew through last night. Ripped the flag off the house. Yeah, ripped the flag off. And we have this big, huge um, iron kettle that we use as a planter right now that my grandmother used to back in the day when they would... They cured lard or something. Yeah, they, they? they would, I didn't want to say kill a hog, but basically that's what it was. When they would kill a hog and they would render the lard down in that, and it's a big, huge I'd say it cast iron. Close yeah. to 100 pounds. And the wind blew that over. So it, it was a windstorm last night, and there's things scattered all over the the neighborhood. But yeah. anyway. But we we put our decorations up this week. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is everybody everywhere seems to be putting Christmas decorations up a lot sooner this year. And part of it could be the weather. You know, here in Ohio, it's been warm, uh, unusually warm for November. And so people have been taking advantage and putting their decorations out early. But I think the p- pervasive what sentiment... What are they calling it? They're calling it, not, not the COVID crud, but um, just tired of... Yeah, 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 that's what I, I, the pervasive sentiment seems to be, we need something. There you go, using big words at me again. We need something that's going to bring us joy and apparently Christmas decorations and the idea of all of the things behind Christmas are one of those things that brings joy. That being said, we need to start maybe thinking about what our Christmas episode is going to be this year. I, I don't know. Last year we did it on, um. The Christmas truce. The Christmas truce, and we did yeah. a live Facebook feed, which I don't think anybody really watched. Yeah, they did. Did we, they? Yeah, we, we even had people call in. Oh, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I'm so I'm so sleepy. Yeah. Well, maybe if you guys want us to do a Facebook live thing again, uh, just drop us an email or whatever, and let us know. This week, we have a. What we think is a very interesting show. It's an anniversary week. We say that every week, but it's an anniversary week. Um, so during no, this- we always say we have a very special show or a very special guest. Or I'm so, so I was excited very for deliberate. this show. Oh. Yeah, I was very deliberate this time in saying what I did. All right, fair enough. Uh, so this is an anniversary week. During this week, 45 years ago, the Great Lakes freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald, set sail for her last voyage on Lake Superior. Now. Before we get started, I had a question. Yes. We say she, her, always feminine pronouns with regard to ships. Do you know why that is? Yes, I do. And that's because... Please enlighten me. Okay. That is because in sailors, they they look towards the the ship is their protection, and it goes back to, like, their mothers of protecting them and stuff like that. So the ship is protection, so... I mean, there's a lot of theories, but that's generally the, the the accepted theory. It's it's because they were protected by their mothers, the sailors were. Was, but it is bad luck to have a woman on a ship. Well, not but, necessarily because of she's going to bring bad luck. I think that's just one of those like well, uh, fairy tales. That, women sometimes get jealous, so you don't want a female on a lady ship, right? A lady ship, I guess so. <laughs> anyway. 
On the 10th of November, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald sank near Whitefish Bay, Ontario, with 29 men on board, and all were lost. You might be familiar with the Edmund Fitzgerald because of the song written and sung by Gordon Lightfoot, which is called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It is a great song, and it's a fitting tribute to the Edmund Fitzgerald, but we will not be playing it because of copyright. Public do- it's not public domain. It is not, but, I mean, it's it's called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's by Gordon Lightfoot. Go look it up if you really want to hear it. It covers the events of that day really well, but there's a lot more to the ship than could be covered in a song. So in this episode, we're going to go into depth about the ship herself, the final voyage, and the investigation into what might have caused her to sink. Like a lot of things, there's there's a lot of possibilities that may be out there. But even with this episode, we even have some audio between the Coast Guard and the uh, SS Arthur M. Anderson, which was a sister ship. And at the time, the uh, Fitzgerald went down, was only 10 miles behind. Um, which is insane to me. That's not that far. But as we're going to get into, the weather was just, and the, and the seas were so choppy that just there was no way that yep. that 10 miles could yeah, be. Basically, they were in like a one in five years storm that was on the Great Lakes. So this was not an unprecedented sized storm, but it was like a one in five years storm. So it was Bad. a very, very powerful storm that yeah. was out there. The sinking of the Fitzgerald brought a lot of changes in the maritime circles on the Great Lakes with a lot of safety things. Just like if an airplane crashes right now, there's a lot of investigation and there's very seldom one reason why something happened. And that seems to be the reason, I don't want to say the reason, but there are a lot of things added up to the, the Fitzgerald going down. So the Edmund Fitzgerald was launched on June 7th, 1958. She was the largest ship on North America's Great Lakes, and to this day, she is the largest ship to sink on the Great Lakes. For 17 years, the Edmund Fitzgerald carried taconite iron ore from the mines near Duluth, Minnesota, to ironworks. So what taconite iron is, they're pellets, and that's what they have to use to make iron. So they have these is it like pellets. kind of raw, the raw ore that they yeah, mine? It's, it's and, then they, the, yeah. and then they put it on the ship and they, yeah. you know, smelt it down or whatever and make yeah. when iron it gets things. To the, when it gets the iron oh, gotcha. factories. Okay. okay. So the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, carried this taconite iron. I'm From now on, I'm probably just going to call it iron ore from the mines near Duluth, Minnesota to different iron works around the Great Lakes, primarily Detroit, Toledo, and but there were other Great Lakes ports that it went to. She was the workhorse of the Columbia Transportation Fleet, and I'll talk more about the Columbia Transportation Fleet in just a little bit. She was big, she was fast, she was powerful. She set six records for the amount of ore she carried in a season. So over wow. six different seasons, she was able to carry iron ore and just set records. One of her captains, a guy named Captain Peter Pulser, was known for piping music day and night over the ship's intercom and entertaining specters at the Sioux Locks between Superior, Lake Superior and Lake Huron. He liked to tell spectators about the ship as we were passing through. Oh, so it's like a tour guide. Yeah, but... he would he would talk about her size, her record-breaking performance. Oh, I guess, there, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little self-promotion, but no, she was, awesome. I mean, He's the Evans Fitzgerald ship. was a unique ship and she was well-known on the Great Lakes. Yeah. Yeah, so while going through the Sioux Locks, he liked to come out of the pilot house and use a bullhorn 
to talk to the the tourists who were on the, the the. I love it. Yeah, and he would give the commentary and details about the Edmund Fitzgerald. He was known as the DJ captain of the Edmund <laughs> Fitzgerald. Now the, the the building of this ship and how it, it started. Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, invested in iron and min- minerals industries on large scale on a large scale basis. Their investment included building the construction of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, I think it's worth noting right here that this was the first such investment by any American life insurance company in any venture like this. And so I don't know how common of practice this is for insurance companies to invest in other projects today. I never would have thought that a life insurance company would invest in something like iron and minerals. Yeah, well, but the Cincinnati Reds play baseball where... Great American Ballpark, and that's named after the Great American Life Insurance Group. So apparently, and you know, just forgive me on this one because it's this type of finance and stuff is not my sure. my thing. But um, it, it it's something that they do, and I hmm. guess they they go out and they invest money to make money. In 1957, the they contracted Great Lakes Engineering Works of River Rouge, Michigan, to design and construct the ship within a foot of the maximum length allowed for passage through the soon-to-be-completed St. Lawrence Seaway. And the St. Lawrence Seaway is the way you get out into the Atlantic Ocean. So wasn't quite completed yet, but they were looking forward, and they wanted it big enough. Now, I don't think the Edmund Fitzgerald ever made it out to salt water, but... But it could have. It, it could have. The Fitzgerald's value at the time she was built was $7 million dollars. That's equivalent to about $49.7 million last year in 2019 dollars. Oh, that is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Edmund Fitzgerald was the first Laker, and that's what they call the ships on the Great Lakes, built to the maximum size of the St. Lawrence Seaway. Now, I'm not going to split hairs with this, but I did a quick search on that just to verify the facts. And the maximum length of the, the St. Lawrence Seaway is 740 feet long. So the Fitzgerald was, what, 729 feet long? So, yeah, okay. But like I said, I'm not going to split hairs on this. She was 729 feet long. That's 222 meters, 75 feet wide, or 22.9 meters wide. And she had a draft of 25 feet, or 7.6 meters. What is that like a wake? That is how deep the ship sits in the water. Oh, okay. They started building her. Construction started on the 7th of August, 1957. The Edmund Fitzgerald was the longest ship on the Great Lakes, earning her the title of, well, she had several titles, mm-hmm. Queen of the Lakes until September 17th, 1959, when the 730-foot SS Murray Bay was launched. Now, Edmund Fitzgerald's three central cargo holds were loaded through 21 watertight hatches. <laughs> Originally, she was coal-fired, but her boilers were converted to burn oil during the 1971 and 1972 winter layup. Is that when, wasn't there an oil shortage at that yeah, point? Yeah, I, think, I think there was. I didn't look that up, but yeah, there was Some like kind of, an energy crisis yeah. or something like that. In 1969, the ship's maneuverability... Well, why would they make it oil burning? Uh, yeah, I don't, okay, yeah, I don't know. In 1969, the ship's maneuverability was improved by the installation of a diesel-powered bow thruster. Okay, you know what that is? I have no idea, and it okay. is going to become abundantly clear to everybody that I know nothing about ships okay, or maritime so Basically, anything. the bow thruster, what that is, it's like a little, think of that as a little jet or a little engine that would push water through it. Mm-hmm. That would, 
It could be sitting up next to the pier instead of having to angle in to try to dock. It could sit parallel to the pier and the bow thruster could push it and it would push it into the pier. Oh, okay. So it's like a little, uh, like one of those things that you have on like a bass boat, the little back engine thing, yeah, the bass th- boat kind of like sort of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, by order freighter standards, the interior of the Edmund Fitzgerald was super luxurious. She included deep pile carpeting, tiled bathrooms, drapes over the portholes, and leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge. So this is not at all what I think of when I think of a freighter. I think of like, when I think of a freighter, I don't know, my mind goes to like deadliest catch, even though I know that's not the same thing. I just think of a bunch of rough, I remember rough she, was the pri- guys. she was the pride of the fleet. Yeah, I know, but I just, I, I don't know. That's When I picture a freighter, I don't picture luxurious accommodations with pile carpeting and tiled bathrooms and leather chairs. I picture, you know, like oil and iron and grossness. But there were actually, in the Edmund Fitzgerald, there were actually two staterooms for passengers. Um, and air conditioning extended to the crew quarters, which featured more amenities than the usual ship. So they had it good. I would imagine that you... Not just anybody got to be the crew on the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was probably a, a primo. I, I bet there's a bidding process. Yeah. I would you think, have to have experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a union. Uh, oh, yeah, that's that, true. Yeah. Uh, there was a large galley and a fully stocked pantry that supplied meals for two dining rooms. The pilot house was outfitted with state-of-the-art nautical equipment in a beautiful map room. And Northwestern Fit or Northwestern Mutual named the ship after its president and chairman of the board, Edmund Fitzgerald. Now his grandfather had himself been a late captain, and his father owned the Milwaukee Dry Dock Company, which built and repaired ships. So you know we mentioned um, we, we didn't really think about insurance companies getting into this kind of stuff, but there was a family tie there, so it kind of makes sense. And on June the seventh of eighteen fifty or nineteen fifty eight, man, I am so sleepy. Uh, more than 15,000 people attended Edmund Fitzgerald's christening and launch ceremony. Now, at the christening and launch ceremony, not everything went exactly as planned. Oh, I feel like this is foreshadowing. Yeah. When, when, when the Edmund Fitzgerald, wife of Edmund, wife of Edmund Fitzgerald, tried to christen the ship by smashing a champagne bottle over the bow, it took her three attempts to break it. Yikes. This was followed by a delay of 36 minutes while the shipyard crew struggled to release the keel block. So basically, she was supposed to, when, when she smashes a champagne bottle, the ship is supposed to slide down the water. Right. Well, that didn't happen. This Inst- was before they had the bass boat motor? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Inst- well, she was up, she wasn't in the water at that time. Oh, so yeah, instead okay, of sliding in the water stern first, which is how some ships are launched, she went she was. It was designed that she would go sideways. As she slid into the water, she made a huge wave that doused the spectators, and <laughs> then she crashed into a pier before righting herself. One man watching the launching had a heart attack and later died. Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. But I feel like if I was a ship, I would be this ship, like just awkwardly launching myself into the water and dousing everybody around me and just making a mess of things. Other witnesses later said they swore the ship was trying to climb right out of the water. On September 22nd, 1958, Edmund Fitzgerald completed nine days of sea trials before she was put into service. Northwestern Mutual's normal practice was to purchase ships for operation by other companies, but in the Edmund Fitzgerald's case, they signed a 25-year contract with Ogilvy Norton Corporation to operate the Fitzgerald. 
Ogilby Norton immediately designated Edmund Fitzgerald the flagship of its Columbia Transportation Fleet, like I mentioned a little bit earlier in the broadcast or in the podcast. The Fitzgerald set record loads for a single trip. She carried 27,402 tons of ore in 1969. Her nicknames included Fitz, Cry to the American Side, The Mighty Fitz, Toledo Express, Big Fitz, and the Titanic of the Great Lakes. Ooh. It took about four and a half hours to load the Edmund Fitzgerald with taconite pellets. It took about 14 hours to unload the ship. A round-trip uh, journey between Superior, Wisconsin, and Detroit, Michigan usually took her about five days, and she averaged 47 trips per season. That's why I said, that's why I want to do this show. That that song by Gordon Lightfoot is a great song and it tells a story, but there's a lot more to this ship than what that. It's a big ship. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that all of the things that happened at the launch and also calling it the Titanic of the Great Lakes. That's so interesting to me in light of what ended up happening. Yeah, and I mean we got to remember that there are still there, there are family members. This was only 45 years ago. There are children of these people. That yeah, it's are alive and, and widows and people that are still alive from this this ship right there. So usually her route was between Superior, Wisconsin, and Toledo, Ohio. Although her port of destination could vary depending on you know where they needed the the the, the iron ore. By November 1975, Edmund Fitzgerald had logged an estimated this is incredible 748 round trips on the Great Lakes. And covered more than a million miles. That's a distant, roughly equivalent to 44 trips around the world. It was a workhorse, that's for yes, sure. Yes, it was. Um, now, up until a few weeks before her loss, passengers had traveled on board as company guests. In those luxurious state rooms. Right. Frederick Stu- or Stonehouse. I'm you sorry. know, I imagine, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I imagine, I just found our board has this thing called ducking that oh I could gosh. push that button and I could over talk you whenever I wanted to. But, you know, I imagine that and there was we'll a lot. A podcast again. <laughs> I imagine there was a lot of business deals that went on. It wasn't yeah, for. That's true. It wasn't for like, let's take a cruise on the Great Lakes and book something. I think it was more of like company business and let's entertain these investors and stuff yeah. like that. That's, that's kind of what I got in mind going on here. Yeah, but it was still a working ship. I mean, they carried all kinds, like you said, they had all kinds of um uh, records and yeah, well, let's, and let's tonnage a, and let's take a trip to Toledo. Woo! <laughs> Nothing wrong with Toledo. We love you, Toledo. Uh, now, up Frederick Stonehouse it's, was it's one of the, the passengers who had traveled on the ship, and he wrote: "The stewards treated the guests to the entire VIP routine. The cuisine was reportedly excellent, and snacks were always available in the lounge." A small but well-stocked kitchenette provided the drinks, and once each trip, the captain held a candlelight dinner for the guests, complete with mess-jacketed stewards and special clam digger punch. It sounds like a carnival or Disney cruise. I don't know what clam digger punch is. I don't know. I, it doesn't sound very good, but apparently it's something a big deal. Uh, now, in 1969, Edmund Fitzgerald received a safety award for eight years of operation without a time-off worker injury. And the vessel ran aground again, though, in 1969, and she collided with the SS, I'm not sure how to say this. Hochelaga? Hochelaga, Hochelaga. In in 1970. How did I know that? Because you're reading the notes. Uh, (laughs) Later that same year, she struck the wall of a lock, an accident repeated in 1973 and 1974. 
Um, during 1974, she lost her original bow anchor in the Detroit River, but none of those mishaps were considered serious or unusual, so I guess occasionally ships just bump into things. Yeah, there's a lot of uncharted water, even in our Great Lakes, yeah. and that will play a part in the investigation, which I'll talk about, one of us will talk about a little bit later. Yeah, now freshwater ships are built to last more than half a century, and Edmund Fitzgerald should have still had a long career ahead of her when she sank, so all of these little bumps and bruises and scrapes and stuff really are not a big deal and did not contribute at all. Maybe. Most likely to, I mean, the little ones, you know, you bump up against this thing, you bump up against that thing. Comprehensively, I don't know that it really had. But it's significant enough that it was recorded and reported. Well, that's true. Yeah, so it wasn't like just a little bump. It must have been something. That's true. Something a little bit more severe. Yeah, that's a good point. So what we've covered up to now is the backstory of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which I really thought it was important for this podcast because we could have gone through and just talked about where we're going to start now, but I, I wanted to to cover because it was a great ship and it oh, was, yeah. there, there was a lot of story backstory behind the Edmund Fitzgerald, but let's get on to the part. Now the, um, that covers the last hours that she was afloat. Edmund Fitzgerald left superior Wisconsin at two fifteen PM on the afternoon afternoon of November 9th, 1975. So that was 75 years ago. I'm sorry, it was 45 years ago this week under the command of Captain Ernest M. McSorley. Now, we need to pay attention here to some of the names because there's going to be some yeah. radio dialogue. So Captain McSorley is the, the captain of the Fitzgerald. She was en route to a steel mill on Zug Island near Detroit, Michigan with a cargo of 26,116 tons of ore pellets. Soon after she was underway, she reached a full speed of 16.3 miles per hour. Around 5 p.m., just after leaving, Edmund Fitzgerald joined a second freighter under the command of Captain Jesse B. or Bernie Cooper, and that ship was named the Arthur M. Anderson, and the Anderson is going to take a huge part of this story here in a little bit. Cooper started his journey on the Anderson out of Two Harbors, Minnesota. All right, so we've got Captain McSorley of the, the Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald um, and then about 5 o'clock, then they joined um, Captain Cooper with the Arthur the captain, M. Anderson. The Captain of the Anderson. Right, okay. Yeah. Now, the weather forecast was not unusual for, for November, and the National Weather Service predicted that a storm would pass just south of Lake Superior by 7 a.m. on November 10th. That would be the next okay. day. Okay. So the SS Wilford Sykes loaded opposite Edmund Fitzgerald at the same port at the Burlington Northern Dock Number 1 and departed at 4.15 p.m., about two hours after the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, left the port. Okay. Captain Dudley J. Hackwatt of the Wilford Sykes predicted that a major storm would directly cross Lake Superior that differed from what the National Weather Service. So apparently... That's so interesting. The, the, the captain of the Sykes, he he was paying a lot of attention to the weather, and he, you know, you know, just like sometimes you would call me, yeah, to look because yeah. the weather the weather thing is like, eh, it's kind of good, but I like to look at the radar, and right. I could tell you pretty close to when it's going to start raining. And I honestly would trust Captain Paquette a little bit more than I would trust the National Weather Service, only because the national experience, exper- experience, exactly. Like he, 
Um, he knew the he knew the Great Lakes. Yeah, he knew the Great Lakes. He'd been doing it for a long time. The National Weather Service just kind of can tell you what's coming, but he know, Captain Paquette knows kind of what's up. Yeah. In more detail. Yeah, he he just had that seafarer old captain's experience. Right. That, yeah. That did that. So he used his experience to the judge the weather that he was going to face. From the start of his journey, he chose a route that took advantage of the protection offered by the lake's north shore to avoid the worst effects of the storm. The crew of the Sykes listened in on the radio conversations of the Edmund Fitzgerald during this whole time. And between the Fitzgerald and the uh, the Anderson during the first part of their trip, and he overheard the captains deciding to take regular Lake Carriers Association downbound route. So Sykes decided to go north to avoid the storm, and Anderson and Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald they took the more regular route, and they weren't as concerned because, because he, they were listening to the National Weather Service right, broadcast. I wonder if he ever radioed in and like tried to say, hey, guys, I... I really don't think that this is a good idea. I, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So from what I understand, this is not uncommon. I think it's just standard operating procedure to monitor other ships, you know, with them listening and talking like this. Mm-hmm. And it's just standard procedure in case of emergency or just, just to follow the reports and right. get updates on condition. Airplane pilots do it. They monitor. They talk about, hey, there's turbulence here and pilots in route will like... Truck they'll, drivers do it. Yeah, and they'll lower, you know, they'll, they'll drop 10,000 feet to avoid turbulence. So yeah. I think it's just common that's going on right here. Oh, yeah. Now, the National Weather Service adjusted its forecast at 7 p.m. and issued a gale warning for all of Lake Superior. So, so but at so this he, point, he was right. Yeah, but yeah, they the, were already committed right Fitzgerald now. Fitzgerald and Anderson were already, this was five hours, yeah. two hours after they were well on their way. Yeah, but the Anderson and the Fitzgerald did alter their course northward a little bit. To take advantage of the shelter along the Ontario shore. So, so they listened the to it. Yeah, but they'd already started, doing, yeah. but they were already in there. Yeah. There they encountered a winter storm at 1 a.m. on November 10th. The Edmund Fitzgerald reported wind knots of wind speeds of 52 knots or about 60 miles an hour and waves 10 feet high. Now it's going to get worse, but that's what they're reporting right now at this point in their voyage. Which is still bad, but I'm thinking that a ship as big as the Fitzgerald, 10 feet to me doesn't seem like it would it, it be wasn't. that bad. You no, know, it wasn't. And they could well have taken care right. of that. Yeah. Okay. They, they easily could have handled that. Now, remember that um, Captain Paquette is is more northbound, a little bit more in inland than um, the Fitzgerald and the Anderson are. And at about 1 a.m., he heard McSorley of the Fitzgerald say that he had reduced the ship's speed because of the rough conditions. Now, Paquette said he was stunned to later hear McSorley, who was not known for turning aside or slowing down, state that, quote, we're going to try for some lee from Isle Royale. You're walking away from us anyway. I can't stay with you. Yeah, now, so he had the biggest ship on the lake. Yeah. So he was probably confident in 10 feet waves. Like I said, that the, the Fitzgeralds probably sailed through that many, many times. But... Already, he was he's saying we're gonna try to to slow it down a little bit. And yeah, we're gonna to. be a little bit more response. Yeah. Um, now at two a.m. on the tenth, the National Weather Service upgraded its warnings from gale to storm, forecasting winds of thirty-five to fifty knots, which is about forty to fifty-eight miles an hour, um, 
And until then, Edmund Fitzgerald had followed the Anderson, which was traveling at a constant 13.6 miles an hour. But the faster Edmund Fitzgerald pulled ahead at about 3 a.m. Well, they passed each other on the lake. Right. Now, as the storm center passed over the ships, they experienced shifting winds, with wind speeds temporarily dropping as wind direction changed from the northeast to the south and then to the northwest. Now, on the 10th, after about 1.50 p.m., when the Anderson logged winds of 50, of 50 knots, which is about 58 miles an hour, wind speeds again picked up rapidly, and it started to snow at 2.45 p.m., which reduced their visibility. The Arthur A. Anderson lost sight of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was about 16 miles ahead at the time. So, it, you know, remember that the Fitzgerald... Um, overtook the Anderson, and now they're making pretty good time. It sounds like they're going along at kind of a good clip. Yeah. Shortly after 3.30 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed the Anderson to report that Edmund Fitzgerald was taking on water and had lost two vent covers and a fence railing, and the vessel had also developed a list. Now, explain what a list is. That's It, it is had that water. The and, and so rolling? It, no, and the... no, it was leaning to one side. It okay. was listing to one side. Gotcha. So the Edmund Fitzgerald ran two of its six bilge pumps continuously to pump out the water to try to straighten the ship up. McSorley said that he would slow his ship down so that Arthur M. Anderson could close the gap between them. In a broadcast shortly after, the United States Coast Guard warned all shipping that the Sioux locks had been closed and they should all ships on the Great Lakes should seek safe anchorage. Shortly after, at 4.10 p.m., McSorley called the Anderson again to report Fitzgerald had a radar failure and asked the Anderson to keep track of them. So the Edmund Fitzgerald was now going through the lake, was pretty much, I could say, was effectively blind. Mm. And then she slowed down to let the Anderson come up to within 10 miles, 16 kilometers range, so they could receive radar guidance from her because it's stormy and, and you know, they're they, snow blind. Yeah, and, and so, yeah. yeah, things are going on out there. For a time, the Arthur M. Anderson directed Edmund Fitzgerald toward the relative safety of Whitefish Bay. At 4.39 p.m., McSorley contacted the Coast Guard station in Grand Marie, Michigan, to see if Whitefish Bay point light and the navigation beacon, beacon were operational. The Coast Guard replied that their monitoring equipment indicated that both instruments were inactive. Ooh. Yeah. So McSorley then sent a radio request to any ships in Whitefish Point area to report the state of the nav- navigational aid. So he's trying to talk. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And he received an answer from Captain Cedric Woodward uh, between 5 and 5.30 p.m. that the Whitefish Point light was on, but there was no radio beacon. Woodward lady later testified to the Marine Board that he overheard, while they were talking on the radio, he overheard McSorley say, you know, maybe he kept the microphone pushed. Don't, this is the quote, don't allow nobody on deck, as well as something about a vent that Woodward, uh, Woodward could not understand. Now, sometime later, McSorley told Woodward, I have a bad list. I've lost both radars and am taking heavy seas over the deck in one of the worst seas I've ever been in. So by late in the afternoon. These are experienced yeah, ship captains out there. Right. So by late in the afternoon of November the 10th, sustained winds of over 50 knots were recorded by ships and observation points across eastern Lake Superior. Arthur M. Anderson logged sustained winds as high as 58 knots, 
um, at 4.52 p.m., while waves increased as high as 25 feet by 6 p.m. So these are not just these little 10-foot waves anymore. Yeah, We're talking some big waves yeah, and now. And this has to do with the way the wind shifted and all this stuff. Right. Now, the Anderson was also struck by 70 to 75 knot gusts. That's 81 to 86 miles an hour. And rogue waves as high as 35 feet. Now, the last communication from the ship came at approximately 7.10 p.m. when Arthur M. Anderson notified Edmund Fitzgerald of an upbound ship and asked how she was doing. McSorley replied, we are holding our own. And she sank minutes later. No distress signal was received. And 10 minutes after that, we are holding our own. Arthur M. Anderson lost the ability either to reach Edmund Fitzgerald by radio or detect her on radar. So the the Fitzgerald went down fast. Yeah. Now, Captain Cooper of the Anderson first called on the Coast Guard in Sault Ste. Marie at 7.39 p.m. on Channel 16, the radio distress frequency. The Coast Guard responders instructed him to call back on Channel 12 because they wanted to keep their emergency channel open and they were having difficulty with their communication systems, including antennas blown down by the storm. Now, Channel 12, I'm assuming, it's is just a regular channel. So Cooper then contacted the upbound salt ward ves- or saltwater vessel, Nanfree, and was told that she could not pick up Edmund Fitzgerald on her radar either. So despite repeated attempts to raise the Coast Guard, Cooper was not successful until 7.54 p.m. when the officer on duty asked him to keep watch for a 16-foot boat lost in the area. Now, mind you, the last communication from the Edmund Fitzgerald was about 7.10. So this is 45 minutes later. Yeah, um, they, they couldn't get, for 45 minutes, they couldn't get the Coast Guard. About 8.25, Cooper again called the Coast Guard to express express his concern about the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, and at 9.03, reported her missing. Petty Officer Philip Branch later testified, I considered it serious, but at the time, it was not urgent. So there, there's a lot of things could have affected this. With the waves that high, it could block... Communication was could, non-existent. Yeah, and with waves that high, it could yeah. block the radar, so... I don't think this was something that was like, uh, when I say unusual, it's like, it's it's very possible that just the waves were so high that they couldn't track it. it. Yeah, and it so, wasn't yeah. like somebody dropped the ball on something. Yeah, was, and no the, one, The yeah. Coast Guard wasn't ignoring them or anything. No, it, it just, was, but by the time they got the Coast Guard, 45 minutes is a long time. Yeah, well, no, they, okay. In seas like this. Yeah. And it's nobody, I'm not saying there's anybody to blame. I realize that it sounds like I'm trying to blame the Coast Guard or blame somebody, and I'm not, but it, it, I'm, all I'm saying is that that is a long time from the time that you potentially have lost a ship until you can find somebody or raise somebody to even start looking for it. Well, so lacking appropriate search and rescue vessels to respond to Edmund Fitzgerald's you know, potential disaster at this time, which was unknown. At approximately 9 p.m., the Coast Guard asked the Arthur M. Anderson to turn around and look for survivors. Now, we have some radio broadcast here between the Coast Guard. It's very, very scratchy, but it is the actual communication between the Coast Guard and the Arthur M. Anderson. It's it's kind of lengthy. It'll be a minute or two, but I want to go ahead and play it so you can hear what was said out there that night. 
information that can get to the, uh, get to the scene, uh, we're going to try to uh, contact those saltwater vessels and see if they can't possibly uh, 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 come about and come back also. But uh, uh, I understand you are loaded, is that correct? The radar here 10 minutes ago, and they were right up to that area. Now, this is Control Roger. We will uh, contact them uh, and see if we can't get them to switch in the area also. We're trying to get a, a Coast Guard aircraft uh, launch to uh, come up to the area, but uh, I would say things, uh, things look pretty bad, like uh, she, she may have split uh, apart at the seams like the uh, morale did a few years back. Well, this is just what I'm wondering, because uh, uh, the mate come up here, we landed off in the last known position that we had on them was 14 miles So that was the actual recording between the Coast Guard and the Arthur M. Anderson you, that night. Could you imagine being Captain Cooper? Like, what kind of a choice is that? You are the only ship in the area to that you, you know, the Coast Guard is asking you, you know, we're, we're going to do what we can. We'll get a chopper out when we can, but you're it. Can you go look? And and you can hear it in his voice. He, got, he didn't want to go, but... He's got his own men to worry about. He, he didn't want to go, but I think... Uh, I, I that, mean, it's his buddy. I think that he's probably going to do. The, they're going to do what they do. have to do. Yeah. Oh God, what a choice. Yeah, I I, I think that's like I I just think he when we say he had a choice, I don't think in his heart he really had a choice. Now, he knew he had to go back yeah, out there and, and look. And you can hear that in his voice too. You, I don't know what kind of a person Captain Cooper was, but you can hear sort of that like warmth and worry in his voice. You can tell just by listening to him that he's a good man and that he wants to do the right thing. Yeah. It's just hard to know like what is the right thing? Are you ready to put your crew in danger to go look for this other crew, but you can't really not go look. You're it. Yeah, and I'm sure all the crew on board knew oh, and yeah. accepted it. Yeah. So right now we're going to go on with this. At about 10.30 p.m., the Coast Guard asked all commercial vessels anchored in or near Whitefish Bay to assist in the search. And I have one more radio transmission between the Coast Guard, and you can't hear everyone answering, So, but it, it's a pretty powerful thing to, uh, to listen to this. So let me go ahead and play that right now. And this is from the Coast Guard to all ships asking if they can go out and aid in the search. Fitzgerald at approximately uh, 7.10 local time. 
some pretty powerful yeah, that recordings that they have really right is. there. And, and you can hear kind of, you know, the Coast Guard. Everybody is, a you know, desperation from the Coast Guard. Like, we need to find these people. We can't get to them. Can you guys help us out? And the other ship saying, we, we can't, you know, we yeah. have our own issues that, yeah. and they're not the only ones that are having but trouble. But they're going out and they're doing it. They are. Yeah. So the initial search for survivors was carried out by the Anderson and a second freighter, the SS William Clay Ford, a third freighter, the Toronto, registered to SS Hilda Marjane, tried, but the heavy seas prevented her from helping. So maybe it was a much smaller ship, but she went out and she tried. Yeah. Yeah. The Coast Guard sent a buoy tender, the Woodrush, from Duluth, Minnesota, but it took them two and a half hours to launch and a day to travel to the search area. The Traverse City, Michigan Coast Guard Station launched a... It's, it's called a HU-16, but it's a, a fixed-wing search aircraft that arrived on the scene about 10.53 p.m., and a little bit later, a, a helicopter with a 3.8 million candle-power searchlight arrived about 1 a.m. on November 11th to, to start looking or try to look for survivors. Mm-hmm. Canadian Coast Guard aircraft joined the three-day search, and the Ontario Provincial Police established and maintained a beach patrol all along the eastern shore of Lake Superior. Although the search recovered debris, including lifeboats and rafts, none of the crew were found. Most of the crew were from Ohio and Wisconsin. Their ages ranged from 20-year-old watchman Carl A. Pickall to Captain McSorley, who was 63 years old and who was planning on his retirement. Edmund Fitzgerald is among the largest and best-known vessels lost on the Great Lakes, but she is not alone on Lake Superior and the seabed out there. In the years between 1816, when the Invincible was lost, and 1975, when the Edmund Fitzgerald sank around Whitefish Point area, that area right there has claimed about 240 ships, known ships that have gone down. A little bit later, a U.S. Navy Lockheed P-3 Orion aircraft piloted by Lieutenant George Connor, and it was equipped to detect uh, magnetic anomalies usually associated with submarines, found the wreck 
on November 14th at the bottom of the lake. So now this is four days later. Um, the Fitzgerald lay about 15 miles west of Deadman's Cove, Ontario, uh, 17 miles from the entrance to Whitefish Bay to the southeast, which remember that's where they were kind of trying to get to is to Whitefish Bay. In Canadian waters, close to the international boundary at a depth of 530 feet. A further November 14th through 16th survey by the Coast Guard using a side scan sonar revealed two large objects laying close together on the lake floor. And the U.S. Navy also contracted Seaward Incorporated to conduct a second survey between November 22nd and 25th. And then from May 20th to, um, to the 28th in 1976, the U.S. Navy dived on the wreck using its unmanned submersible Curve 3 and found the Edmund Fitzgerald laying in those two large pieces in 530 feet of water. Navy estimates put the length of the bow section at 276 feet and that of the stern section at 253 feet, so it almost broke exactly in half. Um, the bow section stood upright in the mud, some 170 feet above from the stern section that lay capsized at a 50-degree angle from the bow. And in between the two broken sections lay a large mass of tacon- taconite. Is that how we say that? Taconite pellets? Yeah. The iron ore pellets? Iron ore. Um, and scattered wreckage was laying about, including the hatch covers and hull plating. And then in 1980... During the Lake Superior Research Dive Expedition, marine explorer Jean-Michel Cousteau, who is the son of Jacques Cousteau, sent two divers from RV Calypso in the first manned submersible dive to the Edmund Fitzgerald. The dive was brief, and although the dive team drew no final conclusions, they speculated that the Fitzgerald had broken up on the surface. It's not known exactly what caused it to sink, but there are several theories and hypotheses. Okay, so I'm going to start in here with these hypotheses and theories. First off was waves and weather. So obviously they had a... Oh, sure. Yeah, but it can be broken up to be a little bit more specific. In 2005, NOAA and the National Weather Service ran a a computer simulation, including weather and wave conditions covering the period from 9 November 1975 until the early morning of November 11th. The simulations that they ran are supported by the reports that they had from the Anderson while they were out there. So they're pretty confirmed, and they know this is a pretty accurate model that they have right here. Mm. Edmund Fitzgerald sank at the eastern edge of the area of the high wind where the long fetch or the distance that the wind blows over water produced significant waves averaging 23 feet by 7 p.m. And by 8 p.m., these waves were over 25 feet. The oh. simulation also showed that one in a hundred waves was reaching 36 feet, or oh. that's 11 meters, and one out of every 1,000 reaching 46 feet. And that matches up pretty much what was said. Yeah. And that doesn't cover the rogue waves, which is another theory we'll cover in a second. Since the ship was heading east, southeastward, it is likely that the waves caused the Fitzgerald to roll Heavily, so it was Which the way it was going. It was causing the, the ship to rock a right. lot back and forth. And and they even confirmed that. Um, they said, you know, we're we're leaning to one side. Well, that was the water in the hull that was making it list. 
Well, but this, even still, I mean, they're still like they're unstable on the on the seas. Yeah. Okay. So, yep. Um, a group of three rogue waves, often called the Three Sisters, was reported in the vicinity of the Edmund Fitzgerald at the time she sank. So this is the second hypothesis: rogue wave. Yes. Now, the Three Sisters phenomenon is said to occur on Lake Superior as the result of a sequence of three rogue waves forming that are one third larger than normal waves. The first wave introduces an abnormally large amount of water onto the deck. The water is unable to fully drain away before the second wave strikes, which adds to the surplus. And then the third incoming wave again adds to those two accumulated backwashes, and that quickly overloads the deck with too much water. Now, Captain Cooper of the Arthur M. Anderson reported that his ship was hit by two 30 to 35-foot seas at about 6.30 p.m., one burying the aft cabins and damaging a lifeboat by pushing it right down onto the saddle. The second wave of this size, perhaps 35 feet, came over the bridge deck. And then Cooper went on to say that these two waves, possibly followed by a third, continued in the direction of the Fitzgerald and would have struck about the time that she sank. Now, this hypothesis postulates that the three sisters compounded the twin problems of Edmund Fitzgerald's known list that we were just talking about and her lower speed in the heavy seas that had already allowed water to remain on her deck for longer than usual. And again, she's rolling and pitching. So, Mm -hmm. again, there's no one thing here that there could be a combination. So another theory is cargo hold flooding hypothesis. The July 26, 1977 Coast Guard Marine Casualty Report suggested that the accident was caused by ineffective hatch closures. The report concluded that these devices failed to prevent waves from getting into the cargo hold. The flooding occurred gradually and probably imperceptibly throughout the final day, finally resulting in a fatal loss of buoyancy and stability. So that could be why, you know, I'm not a sailor but that could be why, you know, there's obviously water in the hold, mm. and that's why the ship was listing. So yeah. this could explain that. As a result, Edmund Fitzgerald plummeted to the bottom without warning. Video footage of the wreck site showed that most of her hatch clamps were in perfect condition. The The Coast Guard Marine Board concluded that the few damaged claps, clamps were probably the only ones fastened. As a result, ineffective hatch closure caused Edmund Fitzgerald to flood and founder. The NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, conducted computer studies, testing and analysis to determine the focus, the forces necessary to collapse the hatch covers, and concluded that the Edmund Fitzgerald sank suddenly from flooding of the cargo hold, which could have been from those waves, the, the rogue waves. Due to the collapse of one or more of the hatch covers under the weight of giant Boarding seas. Now, these are the terms they use in their their um, their report. report. Instead of flooding gradually due to ineffective hatch closures, the NTSB dissenting opinion held that the Edmund Fitzgerald sank suddenly and unexpectedly from shoaling. Okay, so let's talk about this shoaling hypothesis. Um, they believed that instead of hatch cover leakage, the more probable cause of the Fitzgerald's loss was shoaling or grounding in a six-fathom shoal northwest of Caribou Island when the vessel unknowingly raked a reef during the time the Whitefish Point light and radio beacons were not available as navigation aids. This hypothesis was supported by a 1976 Canadian hydrographic survey 
which disclosed that an unknown shoal did run a mile further east of Six Fathom Shoal than shown on the Canadian charts. And officers from the Anderson observed that the Fitzgerald sailed through this exact area. Now, there's also the structural failure hypothesis. Under this hypothesis, there are several thoughts. One published hypothesis contends that an already weakened structure and modification of Fitzgerald's winter load line, which allowed heavier loading and travel lower in the water, made it possible for large waves to cause a stress fracture in the hull. This is based on the regular huge waves of the storm. It does not necessarily involve rogue waves. The stress fracture hypothesis was supported by the testimony of former crewmen, um, including former second mate Richard Orgel, who served on the Edmund Fitzgerald in 72 and 73. Uh, he testified that the ship had a tendency to bend and spring during storms like a diving board after somebody had jumped off. He was quoted as saying that the loss of the Edmund Fitzgerald was caused by hull failure, pure and simple. Now, too, George H. Red Bergner, Edmund Fitzgerald's steward for 10 seasons and winter shipkeeper for seven years, testified in a deposition that a loose keel contributed to the vessel's loss. Now, Bergner testified that the keel and sister Kelsons were the or only tack welded and that he had personally observed that many of the welds were broken. And he, but he was not asked to testify before the Marine Board of Inquiry. Three, retired Great Lakes Works, um, so the GLE or GLEW naval architect Raymond Ramsey, one of the members of the design team that worked on the hull of the Fitzgerald, reviewed her increased load lines, maintenance history, and um, the history of the long ship hull failure and concluded that the Fitzgerald was not seaworthy on November 10th, 1975. He stated that planning the Fitzgerald to be compatible with the constraints of the St. Lawrence Seaway had placed her hull design in a straitjacket. And the long ship design was developed without the benefit of research, development, test, evaluation principles, while computerized analytical technology was not available at the time that she was built. So Ramsey noted that the Edmund Fitzgerald's hull was built with an all-welded instead of riveted modular fabrication method, which was used for the first time in the GLEW shipyard. He concluded that increasing the hull length to 729 feet requested an LD slenderness ratio, so the ratio of the length of the ship to the depth in comparison to the depth of her structure, that ex- caused excessive multi-axle bending and springing of the hull, and that the hull should have been structurally reinforced to cope with her increased length. So basically, they um, they didn't... It, it, the Fitzgerald was the first of her kind, and they didn't have the research and development to go along with it, um, instead of riveting the hull, they welded it, and as a result, it was almost like a like Well, that a supports what the board. one guy said, that it yeah, felt like it that. Yeah, it springs. Yeah, so maybe they took that testimony. So, I mean, I tend to believe Ramsey's hypothesis. From the first two, they seem to support his analysis being made that, I mean, he was a ship architect, and I so I kind of yeah. give a little bit more credibility to what he said. But the other two observations supported what right yeah supported that the coast guard investigation of the fitzgerald sinking resulted in 15 recommendations regarding load lines weather tight integrity search and rescue capability life-saving equipment crew training loading manuals and providing information to masters of great lakes vessels or the captains 
Mm-hmm. NTSB's investigation resulted in 19 recommendations for the Coast Guard, four recommendations for the American Bureau of Shipping, and two recommendations for NOAA. Now, the day after the wreck, Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 29 times, one for each life lost. The church continued to hold an annual memorial, reading the names of the crewmen and ringing the church bell until 2006, when the church broadened its memorial ceremony to commemorate all lives lost on the Great Lakes. The ship's bell was recovered from the wreck on July 4th, 1995, and a replica engraved with the names of the 29 sailors who lost their lives replaced the original on the wreck. I think that's pretty cool. They sent a team down and they recovered the bell and it's on display. Now, there is a little bit of controversy on that, how it was displayed, and the families weren't happy, but that has been corrected. It's now displayed appropriately and not used as like a tourist attraction or something like that. Good. Yeah. So... I, I find this story fascinating. I've you know I've always listened to the song. I've I've heard it by uh, Gordon Lightfoot and thought that's a really neat song. And when we go up to um, Keweenaw and we, we can look out there and you can see the freighters going by. Yeah, they're the, big boats. Yeah, there there's a lot of stuff that goes on, and there's so much more to this story than just the song portrays. Which it's it's a great song, and it, it yeah, go it's a to good it. it's a good tribute. But like. So many disasters, there are so many possible things that contributed to this. And if we look at all these different theories and hypotheses, they could all add up. So it's, I don't think there was one thing. One thing is for sure, certain is she went down fast and they didn't even get time to get a radio off. And one, they, it went down fast. Yeah. Um, Sure. The basic story is she went down in rough seas, but exactly why is important. So they can prevent stuff like this from happening. It looks like there was enough analysis and investigation after she went down to help prevent this, to, to provide safety for for all the the ships and all the crewmen and the families, the security and all that stuff that went out that goes on in the Great Lakes, which are vital. Oh, to, yeah. It, it's vital to the United States. Yeah. What goes on up there. I don't think they get enough credit. No, um, they don't. Yeah. So. And just another little side note. There are apps you can load on your phone and you can track where these ships are in real time on the Great Lakes. That's really neat. And get pictures. And if you go on to Google, there are lots of pictures. There are a lot of uh, pictures from the shipwreck that are down there. And there's some, I, I don't want to get into that because I'm trying to respect the the families that are are still alive, but... Just go and you can Google and you can learn a lot. What we've talked to you about, we've had together from a lot of different sources to put this all together. But it's it's a fascinating story, and I'm glad we got it here to happen on the 45th anniversary of yeah, its second. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's worth noting right here is they almost made it to the safety of Whitefish Bay. Oh, yeah, with 17 sp- miles. Yeah, with the speed of the Fitzgerald that was capable of under normal seas, they could have been in the safety safety of Whitefish Bay in less than an hour. Yeah. So it was, you know, whatever happened at that catastrophic moment, if it hadn't happened, they would have made it safely in in just a little bit of time. I feel like that's a lot of things, though. Most yeah. most tragedies in history is just if it had just been fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, but so that 
ends this episode on the Edmund Fitzgerald. If you'd yeah. like to talk about it, like discuss it with us. If you happen to be one of the survivors of the families of one of the crewmen, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, you can drop us a line at alosthour at gmail.com. Um, you can find us on all the socials on Twitter at alosthour, um, Facebook and Instagram, an hour of your life. So help us out if you can. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about us and and share these episodes on Facebook or wherever. But just share it and, you know, we get more people as, as the virus is starting to... Stay safe, wear your mask. Stay safe, yeah. It's, you know, we're, we're kind of, Ohio said, they think that we're in round three of it right now and things aren't looking good for businesses and all that. So just keep everybody... In, in your thoughts and prayers right now because... The vaccine's coming. Yep, they say the vaccine is coming. It's coming. So, from our studios in Sugar Creek Township... Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. sources this week. Sources include many different Wikipedia articles, shipwreckmuseum.com, michiganradio.org, and New York, or I'm sorry, Detroit News. That's why I do the sources.